All right, Under the Radar, a study of the Bible's unsung heroes. If you've been with us this quarter, we've been studying uh, men and women in Scripture who uh, play such a vital role in God's Word. Even though maybe they have not usually been seen as the heroes within their own stories, many times throughout the quarter, time and time again, we have seen that things are not always as they seem. And these unsung heroes, these under-the-radar figures, deserve so much praise for the tremendous faith and the tremendous things that they did in their lives. And it's the same in the body of Christ as we think about that today, that there are many people when we think about spiritual giants, right? These giants in the faith that you can think about when you were a child, the, that elder or that preacher or that minister perhaps or that deacon, and you think about all the great giants that have come before you, and sometimes it's hard for us to even think we could even come close to reaching maybe that plateau that we have placed them on. Well, this study has shown us that it takes all kinds. Of heroes. This study has shown us that it does not require us to be maybe those larger-than-life heroes like David and Paul, but sometimes we simply need to be like Jonathan and Luke, right, as we've studied this quarter. And when we think about that, I mean, we have to ask the question, how would we look at the story of Esther? if Mordecai's persistently humble faith was not there to save God's chosen people? What if there was no Mordecai? How would we look at the life of Jesus, the life of the New Testament church, and the life of Paul, if, in fact, Luke was not there to preserve those things? What if there were no Luke? You know what? How would we understand the book of Exodus without realizing the impact that Shifra and Pua had by saving that generation of Hebrew boys that would have been murdered had they not stepped up? Or how would we see the bloodline of Jesus remain intact if Jehoshaphat had not saved Joash from Athaliah? But because they feared God, the rest is history. What if there was no Shifra, Pua, or Jehoshaphat? How would we look at the life of Peter if Andrew had not been there to bring him to the Lord? Or how would we look at the miracle we talked about Sunday if Andrew was not there to bring that little child to Jesus who had the five loaves and two fish? Or if he was not there to bring that group of Greeks to Jesus, what if there were or was no Andrew? How would we look at the nation of Israel if there was no Caleb? If Caleb was not there to wholly follow God and believe that they could face the Anakim because they had God on their side, what if Caleb was not all in the way we described a few weeks ago? What if there were or was no Caleb? How would we look at the book of Acts without the life of Dorcas who had such a servant heart that God had to raise her from the dead? What if there were no Dorcas? How would we look at the life of David without the friend, the companion, the encourager that Jonathan was? How different would David's story in life be 
if Jonathan was not there denying himself all the way along the way? What if there were no Jonathan? And lastly, how different would the first century church look like if they did not have the example of Stephen, the leader, the worker, the preacher, the martyr, the igniter that we talked about last week, the man who literally inspired the entire church to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, bringing Jesus' last words to fruition in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. What if there was no Stephen? You know, the good news tonight is that we don't really have to ask the question, what if there was no blank, because there was. And because there was, we have been taught thousands of years later so many things by their life. We've been taught that every single person in the body of Christ, followers of God, can have a role, they can have a function, and they can have a part to play for the betterment of the kingdom of God. We just have to find what that role, function, or part is. And today our study is no different. Tonight we are going to be studying another figure who has for so long gone undetected by the radar. We may know of him, but we may not have realized his impact that he had on one of the greatest figures in all the Bible. Tonight, we'll be studying about a priest. Maybe you know him as Ruel. Some may know him as Hobab, but that's not what we're going to refer to him as tonight. Tonight, we're going to be going back to the Old Testament to study one of the greatest father-in-laws of all of Scripture. We're going to be going back to learn about a man from Midian. People's brains are firing, they got it by this point who always knew exactly what to do and what to say, a man who rejoiced about all that God had done for Israel. Tonight, we're going to be studying the life and the impact of Jethro. No, we're not going to be talking about this comedic legend from the Beverly Hillbillies. We're not going to be talking about that, Jethro. Uh, we are going to be talking about the Jethro we read about among the story of Moses. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And the first time that we get to see Jethro, that takes place in Exodus chapter 2. So if you go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, we're going to be starting there. And if you were to look at chapter 1, that is where we talked about a few weeks ago two of our other unsung heroes. Remember when we talked about Shifra and Pua, those Hebrew midwives as they saved the generation? Remember that was in chapter 1 of Exodus. If you were to look at chapter 2 in the first 10 verses or so, we're going to see the birth of Moses, the whole basket down the river with Miriam, and the uh, Egyptian raising that he had uh, among the Egyptians. So a lot takes place in those first you know, 10 or 11 verses, doesn't it? The birth of Moses, I mean, the whole story of him growing up among e uh, the Egyptians, that's a lot that happens in the first 10 verses, but that leads us exactly to where our study begins tonight, in verse 11 of chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. Let's go ahead and read a few verses there. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. 
Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out to the second day, behold, the two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you, and kill, as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Let's stop right there. Now many of us, if you've been in the church, you've been... Studying the Bible any matter of time, you may have heard of this story about Moses striking the Egyptian down and having to flee the Pharaoh and, and, and going to Midian and, and all the things that we have studied for many years. So much so that when you close your eyes, you might be able to picture it, right? You can see the image of how this might have played out and looked like. And so we see Moses has grown up among the Egyptians. He is one of the Egyptian elite. And he goes from having the entire kingdom of Egypt at his fingertips to losing it in a single day. Moses, we see, intentionally kills an Egyptian. It's interesting how he says he looked both ways and uh, he just was like, okay, I don't see anybody, and then just went for it. And he killed an Egyptian taskmaster just to find out that others had seen it or others had heard of it and so when Pharaoh overheard that this had happened it says that he sought to kill Moses the one that had grown up among them and he sought for his life so what does he do he flees to Midian thousands of miles away from Egypt that's what it says in verse 15. He, he went to Midian, the land of Midian. I want to give an interesting note about the land of Midian, about who these people were. You may not have realized this before in your studies uh, prior to tonight, but if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, in the first few verses there, the Bible is going to tell us of the descendants of Abraham and his wife Keturah. No, not his wife, his, uh, not Hagar, not Rachel, but a woman named Keturah. And of these children, one of the names was Midian. So Genesis chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Lidashim, and Limumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elada. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. And so as we get started tonight, we need to understand that these Midianites, these people from the east, were the descendants of Abraham, the father of Israel. You may not have realized that before as we think about Midian. As we think about this story, we may not have realized that these were the very outcasts. 
that had been sent away by their own father, that had, they did not descend from the chosen seed. They did not descend from Isaac or Jacob. These were the descendants of people that had been cast out from among Abraham and the country of their forefathers. So the Midianites were very similar to the Ishmaelites. Does that make sense? Ishmael, the son of Hagar, when they found out all that they found out about how Isaac was still coming, they sent Ishmael away. Abraham sent Ishmael away the same way he sent Keturah and her sons away. And one of those sons was Midian. So there's a lot in common with the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. They were the children of Abraham, but were not the chosen seed that led to Christ. And notice what the text says about what Abraham did. It says that he gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the children he had with the concubines, he made them move eastward, made them move away from the descendants of Isaac. And little did we know, generations upon generations later, one of these Midianites was going to be vital for a very special Israelite. Our text continues in verse 16. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that we may eat bread with him. Then Moses was content to live with the man. And he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And so here we discover Jethro, this priest of Midian, this Ruel figure who was the father of seven daughters. And we find that these daughters were there getting water one day while Moses was at the well. And these seven daughters were getting that water to feed Jethro's, or to give water to Jethro's flock of sheep. And when all of a sudden these men drive in there and try to drive the women away from the well and perhaps cause harm to these seven women, these daughters of Jethro. But because Moses was there, they were scared away. We don't know what he did or, or perhaps how he turned them away, but Moses was an intimidating figure perhaps. And these people ran away because they were scared. And because of this great gesture on behalf of Moses, Ruel, or as we know him, and we're talking about him tonight, Jethro, he invites them to live with them. Not only does he let, them, let him live with them, he gives him a job over his flock. And it doesn't end there. He gives him one of his very own daughters as a wife. And before we move on, I want to discuss something, you know, about where Moses was at this moment. You know, a lot of times we just gloss over that fact. A lot's happened in a few verses, right? He, he, he's fleeing, and now he's got a home, now he's got a job, now he's got a wife. You know, it's like, all right, now we're ready to move on. When does the sea open up and they walk over it, right? But let's talk about this moment where Moses is at this moment in time. Moses had been fleeing for his life from the most powerful man in all the world. Moses was fleeing the absolute greatest world power, Egypt. 
And he was scared for his life. He had a target literally on his head. The Pharaoh sought to take his life. And where does he go? He goes to Midian. And he don't know where he's going. He doesn't know the Midianites. He doesn't know Jethro. He surely doesn't know these women. And Jethro not only gave him a place to stay, not only did he give him a job, he gives him one of his daughters. And notice there's no conditions here or, or no work to be completed in order to receive my daughter Zipporah. It's not Laban. I mean, he's not having to work seven years and, you know, then you'll get Leah, then you'll get Rachel. There's no conditions here. It's he gives his daughter Zipporah to him. You know, just before we move on, that had to be... I mean, Jethro has to be an amazing sense of character. He, he has to be able to discern someone's character in an amazing way. Because he must have had to know that he could trust Moses, even though all he knew about him and was that he was a supposed Egyptian. That's what his daughters described him as. As an Egyptian saved us, but yet we see Jethro trust Moses from the beginning. And so for the next 40 years, Moses would shepherd Jethro's flock. And he would raise children with Zipporah. And he would evade the wrath that awaited him back in Egypt. And after this, if you were to look at your text, we can look and see that the next chapter, God famously calls Moses through that burning bush to go back to Egypt to let his people go. And we see the different excuses that Moses gives God over and over again up until the point that God had had enough and he tells them, you're going to do it whether you want to or not. And immediately after that, Moses returns to Jethro. He returns to the man who had given him a home, he'd given him a shelter from the Egyptians, the man who had given him a job, the man who had given him his own daughter. And he tells Jethro, I have to return back to Egypt. You look at that in Exodus chapter 4. And in verse 18, Jethro simply responds, Go in peace. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't say, Tell me more about this God. Tell me more about what you're talking about. And how could you leave my flock? How could you leave your wife, your, 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 your children? How could you do that? He takes his children and his wife, but it doesn't work out. They have to go back. But he doesn't ask any questions. He simply says, Go in peace. And from there, if you were to just flip through your exodus, he leaves Midian and, Midian and he returns to Egypt. He reunites with his real brother Aaron and he encounters the Pharaoh. The plagues ensue and the Passover happens. And the Pharaoh releases the Jews. The crossing of the Red Sea happens. Manna rains down from the sky. The pillar of fire and, and the water from the rock all happens. And all the while, Jethro has been in Midian with Zipporah and Moses' children, his two sons. And we don't catch back up with Jethro until Exodus chapter 18. If you'll go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1 it says, And Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for the it, and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom one of the names was Gershom, 
For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the other was Eleazar. For he had said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And so let's stop right there in our text. And after all that Jethro had heard about what God had done, says that he wanted to bring Zipporah, Gershom, and Eleazar to Moses. It's interesting that it says after he had heard about all that God had done, realized Midian is thousands of miles from Egypt. But yet the fame of what had happened in Egypt had spread all throughout the nations. What God did with the plagues, how He got His own people away from Egyptian bondage was spreading all throughout the land to the point that Jethro heard about it. And not only has Moses been separated from his family for a very long time, all the way from chapter 4 to chapter 18 here, If you look in your Bibles a little bit ahead, we realize that we are moments away. We are a few pages away from one of the biggest moments in all the Bible, the the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 when Moses received the law from God. And in fact, it says in our text in verse uh, 5 that they went to the mountain of God. So here Jethro is bringing Zipporah and his two sons to Moses right before they received the law of God. But the news of the Exodus had spread throughout all the land. And Jethro knew it was time to reunite Moses with his family. And before we move on, we see what happens in a second, but... Can you imagine the joy that Moses must have felt in this moment? After he had been through all the things with Pharaoh, after he had experienced all the things that they had witnessed, he finally is able to get back with his family only because Jethro knew it was time to reunite the family. And where were they going to reunite? At the mountain of God. Mount Sinai. The text continues in verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. Let's stop right there. You know, I just love the image here, you know, of Moses running out to meet his family, running to meet Zipporah and his two children, and and, and interestingly enough, all we read about is him reuniting with Jethro. It says when he saw Jethro, he bowed down and he kissed him. 
And it says that they asked each other about their well-being. You know what that means in our context? They caught up. They, they, they shot the breeze. I mean, how interesting is that? That Moses gave such love and focus towards his father-in-law. Like they were two great friends. And we do not get to read uh, about him reuniting with his wife or you know, picking up his two kids and, and talking to them, but it is awesome to see the reuniting that takes place with Jethro. And it just shows you the impact and the love he must have had for Jethro. Jethro, the man who had given him a home, a job, a wife, and safety for 40 years. And so we see him just telling Jethro of all the great things God had done. And you can almost imagine Moses' excitement as he tells Jethro all these things. About the Red Sea, about the ten plagues, about the pillar of fire, about water from the rock, about the manna that fell down from heaven. And he went on and on and on about all that God had done for Israel and the people. He's almost giddy with excitement telling Jethro his father-in-law, about what God had done. And before we move on in our text, I want us to remember who Jethro was. I want us to remember that he is not from the chosen seed. He really has no attachment to God letting the Israelites go. Why? Because he is not an Israelite. He's a Midianite. He was of the outcast. He was of the child that was not the chosen one. He was of the wife, Keturah, who was not Rachel. He is not a descendant of Isaac or Jacob or God's chosen people. They had Abraham in common, but these are two entirely separate lives. We know him as the priest of Midian. Does that mean he's the priest of God? No, the priests have not been set up in the Mosaic Covenant. He's a priest of perhaps other gods. But what happens next shows us the faith that Jethro had in Jehovah God. Let's continue reading in verse 10. It says, And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, He was above them. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and offered sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Let's stop right there. Remember, we said that we don't really know what he was priest of. But once he hears of the power of God, Yahweh, the man, the, 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 the God who caused all the plagues, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who freed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. Once he heard of that, he knew who the real God was. And what an amazing response we see from Jethro here, the priest of Midian, the priest who wanted to now follow Yahweh. 
It says that he gives the glory to God, right? He rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done in Israel. And he said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered. And he goes on and on about how this God was the real God. How Yahweh is the greatest God above all the other gods. And he says, in the very aspects of life that those other gods were to have dominion, Yahweh has shown that He actually has the dominion. Many of you know if you've studied the Bible, if you've been in church long enough, many believe that each plague that God did in Egypt targeted a specific Egyptian God. Each plague that God did and imposed on the Egyptians was in an effort to destroy one of their gods. Isn't it interesting that the language that we see here in this text that Jethro says? He says, For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. And so here we see that that is definitely in play here with what Jethro says. He is saying that in these things that these Egyptian gods were supposed to be, have dominion over, God was the one, Yahweh was the one who showed that He was the real one in control. That He had full control. And that He was above them, it says. And so what does he do in verse 12? It says he took a burnt offering and he offered it to God. Notice what happens after he offers this burnt offering. Guess who shows up? Aaron. Some of the elders showed up and ate bread and the sacrifice with Jethro, someone who was not an Israelite. And it says not only that they ate together, but that they ate it before God, they ate this sacrifice and this bread together. So what can we learn by that? Obviously, since they did it before God, that we can learn that it pleased God. And obviously, Jethro had now placed his faith in Yahweh. But not only did he place his faith in the Lord, he's about to talk to Moses about some advice that would help the Lord's people and change the course of Israelite history into this very day tonight. Judicial systems forever. Let's read verse 13 and following. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit? And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another. And I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Let's stop there. So here we see Jethro watching Moses and how he conducts himself on a daily basis. And the list of things that he has to do Every single day, from literally morning until night, he is busy running himself into the ground with work. 
And Jethro does not like it one bit. From morning until night, all of the people of Israel would come to him and he would be this de facto judge over the situation who would hand down a judgment on what God's will was or what God's statute was on this matter, on this situation, regardless of what the situation was. Whenever anyone had a difficulty or a dispute or an argument, as some translations say, Moses was the one that they had to go to. And it says that they would wait there all day in line. It's like the worst day ever at Disney World. I mean, you're just waiting all day in line to finally get up there, and then what if you get up there and Moses rules against you? I mean, you're, it's just it's double pain, right? I mean, these Israelites are having to wait all day. And so Jethro says, this just isn't... What are you doing? This is not smart. First of all, these Israelites are going to get sick of this. Second of all, you're going to run yourself into the ground. You're not going to be able to do this. I want us to realize also, I've said this many times, but when it comes to the Israelites, at this point in their history, we're talking about perhaps two to three million people. Isn't it obvious that not one man could attend to all those people and all the disputes that come about? We got seven elders and about 600 people. And sometimes we all get stressed with the amount of disputes and arguments and stuff that happens among us. Imagine the multiplication that would have to happen when it comes to the Israelites. And when it comes to Moses having to deal with this, all by himself. And so Jethro, he, he just tells what's obvious. This is not going to be the most effective way. And let's see what he says in verses 17 and following. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. You know, Jethro, obviously, throughout our study tonight, has shown the ultimate faith in his son-in-law, right? To this point, he gave him the ultimate faith. He says, okay, you're this runaway from Egypt. You're this wanderer from Egypt. All right, I'm good. You can have a job. You can, have, you can stay here. Uh, you, can have my, you can have my daughter. Uh, you can stay here for 40 years. He's shown the ultimate faith in this son-in-law, Moses, to do so many great things. But this time, he knew Moses had stretched himself too thin. This time he realized that no human could possibly judge over thousands of disputes every single day, single-handedly, from morning until dark. Think of the unbelievable stress that is on Moses in this situation. That Moses has to know exactly what to say, exactly what to do, and how to handle every single problem that was brought before him. And obviously he had God talking to him. He had God helping him, but there was simply not enough time in the day to hear all the disputes that the children of Israel, this entire nation, were bringing to him alone. And so Jethro gives him counsel. 
And he tells them it is totally fine for him to stand up for God before the people and tell them what God's will is. And it is totally fine for him to help judge the people. But it's impossible for him to do both by himself. Let's continue reading in verse 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall themselves judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged all the people at all times. And the hard cases they brought to Moses but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. You see, Jethro knew that it was not possible for Moses to be both the legislative branch and the judicial branch by himself, so he had to split up the responsibilities. But not just to split it up among just anybody. He had to split it up among able men. Men who feared God. Men who held to the truth. Men who hated covetousness. And he says you should set it up like this. You should have some of these men rule over thousands. You have some of these men rule over hundreds. And some of these men rule over fifties. And some of these men rule over tens. In this way, you only have to hear the major disputes. The hard cases, as the text says. And the basic problems among the people would be effectively dealt with by these other rulers. And in doing so, you can bear the burden among yourselves whenever the rest of the problems arise. But notice one thing about Jethro's plan. He doesn't exactly claim he knows perfectly what he should do. He says, if you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. Jethro has this great plan. He's got this great idea. He's got this phenomenal, you know, inspired plan. But what does he ultimately do? He says, if God so commands you, then you'll be able to do it. See, Jethro gave God the ultimate choice on the matter. Notice that God must have thought it was a great idea. That it was the right thing to do because that's exactly what Moses does. And will continue to do all throughout his life, Joshua's life, on into the judges. All because this non-Jewish priest who had descended from Keturah had been casted to the east, to the land of Midian, because this man knew exactly what Moses and God's chosen people should do. Because of that, the rest is history. And so tonight, as we think about 
the life of Jethro. Someone says, Ben, I, I just don't get the big deal here. I just don't get the big deal. I mean, I realize he's a pretty great guy. He had some pretty good ideas. He did some pretty cool stuff. I just don't think Jethro belongs to be mentioned or deserves to be mentioned alongside of uh, the likes of Stephen and Mordecai and Luke and, and Dorcas, these people that we've talked about in the past few weeks. And if that is you tonight, I want you to think about Moses for a minute. I want you to think about the immeasurable impact that Moses had on the entire Bible. About how his life would affect the generations that led up to Jesus. About how when we read the New Testament and we read about the law, it more frequently calls it the law of Moses than it does the law of God. Why? Because Moses was such an integral figure throughout the whole Bible. I want you to think about the three men who were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Who were they? One of them was Moses. One of them was Jesus and one of them was Elijah. I want you to think about how God Himself said in Numbers chapter 12 that He had such a relationship with Moses that He spoke with him face to face as He would with a friend. I want you to think about what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 through 12, when it says, But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and all his land, and by that mighty power, and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And I want you to think, I want us to think about tonight all of these things about Moses. And realize how great of a leader he is. But ask the question, where would Moses be without the influence the mentorship, and the guidance of his father-in-law, Jethro. You know, we don't ever really ever read about Amram, Moses' true biological father after the birth narrative, to my knowledge at least. We don't ever read about Amram. But we know that Moses had an earthly father who helped raise him who helped guide him, who gave him a home, who gave him a job, who gave him his own daughter. And that father figure's name was Jethro. Where would Moses be if Jethro had not opened his home to him, if he had not given him that job, if he had not given him a wife, if he had not given him the safety to last 40 years until the Pharaoh who sought to kill him had died off? If he hadn't let Moses return to Egypt after the burning bush, what, where would Moses be if he hadn't have brought Zipporah and his two children there at Sinai? Where would Moses be if he hadn't shown Moses a better way to judge the disputes that was slowly beating him into an early grave? Where would Moses be 
if he didn't have Jethro. You know, it's probably true that no one in this room tonight or watching online with us can be like Moses and have the impact, at least, that Moses had. The man who the Bible says literally led Israel by the hand throughout the wilderness. The man whom God talked face to face with as a friend. But it is also true that every single person in this room and watching with us tonight can be like Jethro. Because when we think about it, all Jethro ever did was no matter the circumstance, he had wisdom. Jethro had the wisdom to know what to do and what to say regardless of the situation. And to do that, it takes wisdom. Now I know after 12 weeks of Ecclesiastes, it's awful convenient for us to be talking about wisdom tonight. I understand that. Might be the last topic you want to talk about, but we have to understand seriously tonight that if Jethro did not have the wisdom to know exactly what to do in every circumstance, the impact that would have had on Moses, one of the greatest leaders in all the Bible. If he didn't have the wisdom to know what to do when this wandering Egyptian showed up, he wouldn't have brought him into his home, thereby giving him a job, which thereby brought him his wife and his two sons. He might not have had the safety away from Egypt that he needed to, to evade the Egyptian pharaoh and whoever was out there looking for him for 40 years. But, because he had wisdom, he let Moses return to Egypt. He didn't say, hold on, this is going to affect my bottom line. You're one of my greatest shepherds. You're one of my greatest workers. I'm not going to lose you. He had the wisdom to let him go. He also had the wisdom to bring his family back to him on Mount Sinai. He had the wisdom to see that Yahweh is the one, the true and the living God, even though he had never thought so before. He also had the wisdom to know exactly how to advise Moses. You know, when we read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, of all the people that the light bulb wasn't on, Jethro's light bulb, his wisdom, might be the brightest throughout all of those books. Because even Moses hit that rock. Even Aaron built the golden calf. But Jethro simply was wise. And that is why Jethro is one of the greatest unsung heroes in all the Bible. And why he deserves to be preached about and talked about tonight. But what about us? How can I be like Jethro? 
how can I have the wisdom and the discernment to make good decisions? Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1 and verse 5, another one of the books that we have studied in the roundtable study. James chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so here tonight, if you're thinking, you know, I'm just like Moses I'm, I, when it comes to the wisdom aspect. I, I'm just like Aaron. I'm, I'm just like all these other people where the light bulb is just not on sometimes. I do not make good decisions. I do not have wisdom. James tells us that if any of us lack wisdom, all we got to do is ask for it. All we got to do is ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given unto Him. What a promise. What a promise that we have in James chapter 1 that if we lack wisdom, if we do not know what to do in a certain situation, if we do not know how to handle a certain thing in our life, we simply have to go before God who gives wisdom to all. He's not going to, when you come before Him in prayer and say, Lord, I need more wisdom, He's not going to be like, uh, nope. And then the next person prays, I need wisdom. He's like, I like this one better. Why? Because the verse says He gives to all liberally and without reproach. He doesn't pick and choose His favorites. He gives wisdom to all liberally and without reproach. And then the promise at the end, it will be given to Him. You know, if we're ever going to be the body of Christ that God believed we could be, we're going to have to have members of that body who are wise. We're going to have to have members who have the discernment and the wisdom to make good decisions. People who make decisions based on God and God alone, not based on any other factor that's out there. The decisions that we make have to be wise if we're ever going to be like Jethro. And they're also going to have to be consulting with God the same way Jethro's was when he said, and if God so commands, then you'll be able to bear it. That is how we have to be. That is what we should be aspiring to. If 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes and tonight's study hasn't taught you, followers of God have to have a wisdom that the world doesn't have. We have to have the wisdom not to fall for all of the garbage that's on social media. The wisdom not to fall for all of the division that falls around us every day of our life. The wisdom to know what to do, what to say, and how to act. That is what God expects from us. For us to have wisdom. And tonight, 
if you want to be a hero, if you want to be a hero for God, sometimes all it takes is wisdom. Thank you. We're going to be closed in prayer by our brother Gene Clower.